So thankful for this beautiful opportunity we've had to sing praises to God together and to be led by our choir and musicians in focusing our attention upon the Lord. It's good to see you here at 2008. You look better than you did in 2007. Just <laughs> wonderful. And we're going to take a moment now to hear a word from the Lord. Exodus chapter 14 at the very end. We'll begin with uh, verse 30. This is one of the great episodes in the Bible. Churchgoer and non-churchgoer alike knows this story. Uh, God's people had been trapped in slavery in Egypt for generations. Then he rescues them in a mighty way. And now they're on the other side. Now they're on the other side. And that's where we're going to enter into this. Newcomers to church, if you have the Bible in front of you that we have here, I think it's page 81. It's the very beginning of the Bible. And let us stand together because we want to remember that we're hearing the word of our father. Exodus 14, beginning with verse 30. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. He is my father's God and I will exalt him. Go to verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea... The Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women following her with tambourines and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now, I want us to go to the end of the Bible for just a moment, because the same song comes back again with different instrumentation. You, you'll see in Revelation, the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 15. If you can't turn there, just listen and I'll read it. They're beside another sea, not the Red Sea, the Crystal Sea. And this is what John, who was on the island, saw. Verse two of chapter 15. And I saw. What looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of the name. 
they held harps given them by God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, there are what I call lightning rod issues in the life of any church. There always have been, and I believe there always will be. Do you know what I mean by lightning rod issues? Uh, Those things that get us to disagree with one another. It it seems that we who are human, uh, until God is done with us, we have this remarkable ability to get into a dispute about almost anything. Did you know that? And it's not just true of us now. It's always been true. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of it. There are a number of the books in the Bible that we wouldn't have, except that people within the life of the church got into a dispute and people like the Apostle Paul had to write them a letter to try to get it right. What kind of issues? Well, should we, when we believe in Jesus, should we keep all of the rules and regulations of the Old Testament? Book of Galatians. Oh, Jesus is coming back again. Is it really the, a thing of faith that we just stop doing everything? No work no, and just go up onto a mountain and wait for him to come? Written to the Thessalonians. Uh, when, when we come together in a church within their culture, uh, should men or women wear uh, head coverings? Both, neither, how should, all of this. These were the issues they were wrestling with. It seems like once we become Christians, that, that our ability to disagree with one another isn't done away with. Have, have you noticed that? Now, there is one issue that throughout the last several hundred years seems to have had, and I've looked for a, a sensitive way to put this, uh, a remarkable resiliency to inspire us to disagree. What, what do you think about that? One issue has had this remarkable resiliency and its ability to inspire us to disagree within the church family. And that is the way we worship together. Particularly the way we sing together. The style, the volume, the length. You know this is true. Now, here I am. I've only been here four months. And here I am. Is it courage or foolhardiness that I want to talk to us about this? The Lord has put it so deeply on my heart. I hope you know already, though we've been together such a short time, that I, that I love you and love the people of this church. And I, I've sensed the same uh, coming back toward us coming here. And that's why I believe that with God's work among us, we can take a few moments and think about difficult issues like this. Because I believe that one of the things that would please the Lord, one of the things that would please the Lord is if we could show to the world the unity of his family. And one of the best ways to do that is in the way that we sing with one another. So I want to think for these next few weeks about worship, but today particularly about us worshiping together, as John pointed it out, especially the way we sing together. Now, to get into this. I have to start with what I consider to be an all-too-brief discussion 
of what worship is, because that really changes everything about how we worship together, what it is. Now, the biblical words, both Old and New Testament, that are translated worship in our Bible, have to do with the notion of bowing down. So, John, I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to do that, of bowing down. And usually when you bow down before someone, you are acknowledging that that other person is in control. It has to do with surrendering all that we are and have to someone else. Now, listen to me. It's the consistent message of the entire Bible that there is only one person in this cosmos who is worthy of us acknowledging that he is in control of everything and that all that we are and have should be surrendered to him. And that is the triune God. That is God himself. So that we have these great, great texts in the Bible about worship, like Psalm 29, in which the psalmist David would say, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So if that's what worship is, Uh, The acknowledgement that all that we are and have belong to him, the giving of all that we are and have to him. Then I've tried to come up with the best definition of biblical worship that I can. And I'll put it in front of you. Look at it. Think about it. What is worship as we gather? Worship is the proper response of the whole of our lives to the triune God. It's the proper response of the whole of our lives to the triune God, so that when we worship, we ascribe all honor, all praise, all worth to God precisely because He is worthy. So that true worship results in God being at the center, both of our adoration and of our action, both in our personal lives and in our corporate gatherings. Do you see that? So that worship is not just what we do here together. We worship him in every day of our lives. When God is at the center of our beings and we do what we do simply because we want to honor him, that's worship. But when we come together, we are called upon together to offer all that we are, our thanks, our praise, our honor to God alone. In fact, our English word worship really is sort of a degeneration of an old uh, English word, which was worthship. I think it was just too hard to say, don't you think? Worthship. So it's become worth it. But I like the idea that God is worthy of our gratitude. And when we come together, he is the one that we cast our attention upon. Now, if worship is the proper response that we have to God, the question I have is, how on earth do we, who are so different from one another, how do we do it together? And does the Bible give us any help with this? And that's why I think the text that I've read to you, Exodus 14 and 15, is a wonderful place to begin. And that's all that we can do in the few moments that we have. You know that, don't you? I'm going to try to lay down just a few basic principles about it. Now, remember again what's happening in Exodus 14 and 15. God has just rescued his people. I mean, they had been in slavery for a long time. And, and, and he rescued them. Uh, it was an amazing thing. Because for a long time, the Egyptian people who had held them in slavery didn't want them to leave. And through ten plagues, 
They were not only willing to let them leave, but most of them were saying, get out, please, please go. But as they were going, of course, the one big cheese in power, the, the pharaoh, decided either it was an ego problem for him or he, he recognized what they were going to lose in all this slave labor. And he takes off after them with his chariots and with his military. And you know what happens. They felt like they were trapped on one side of the Red Sea. And God does yet another miracle. He opens that Red Sea. And God's people go through to safety. And uh, here come the chariots after them. But what God does is closes up the water. The horse and its rider. He has swallowed up into the sea. They would eventually sing. So here they are on the other side of the Red Sea. Having been miraculously discovered. Now I think that the people thought, now that we've come out of slavery, now it's going to be smooth sailing to the promised land. Yellow brick road to the land of milk and honey. And then what did they, they looked around and what did they see? Wilderness. They had a wilderness to go through. And they had external enemies in that new land. And they had all of their internal divisions that they had to wrestle with too. So Exodus 12 through 15 gives us some basic instructions about how you go through those tough wilderness times and get to the place where God would have you to be. This has become, both in the rest of the Bible and then for Christians throughout the ages, a major episode that tells us that we too have been rescued. Not from the slavery of Egypt, but you know what the Bible talks about the slavery to our own sin, that God has done something. He knows us and he's rescued us. He has set us free. He has promised us forgiveness and a new life, but he's not done with us yet. So here we are also walking through this very, very difficult world, right? And, and how does God help us in the midst of those times? Well, chapters 12 through 15 talk about that. Someday I'm going to come back to that. But as we get to the end of chapter 14, we find one of the basic lessons, and here it is, that a, a vital part of you and, and I making it through uh, the wilderness is worshiping together. When, when things are tough all through the week, one of the gifts that God gives to us is what we're doing right now. He brings us together with other people, and as we worship together, we should cast our eyes on God again and leave this place with a renewed commitment, knowing that God is sufficient. And a big part of that worshiping together is our singing. When they were rescued, in verse 30, the only thing that they could do in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, was to sing a song to the Lord. Do you see that? Now, that song is one that comes back again in the book of Revelation. And when God's people are all gathered together, we're going to be singing. I don't know if you've read through the book of Revelation. It's not an easy book to understand, is it? And I don't know if you understand much about what heaven's going to be like. Sometimes I try to imagine it. It's almost unimaginable. But when I read the book of Revelation, one thing becomes so clear to me. Heaven is going to be filled with music. John was there in exile. And God gives him a vision of heaven. And everywhere he looks, he finds people singing. He finds living creatures, whatever they are, around the throne. And they are singing. 
He finds 24 elders there casting their crowns before him and they are singing. So there are men's choirs up there. He, he finds thousands and thousands of angels surrounding the throne of God and they are singing. Now, why? Why is heaven filled with music? It's, it's the way that God has made us in his image. Partly this. God has made us so that people rejoice when there's a great victory, especially when there's a victory of good over evil. That's why movies about that are so popular. We just rejoice when there's a victory of God over evil. And when something just thrills us to the depths of our being, we try to find some way to express that. And one of the gifts that God gives us is the gift of music. Sometimes when, when the words of your preacher simply aren't enough, you are just so thrilled with what God is doing. The best gift that God gives us is the ability to sing praise to him. So here in the book of Exodus, when they were rescued, they could hardly believe it. And they were just on the other side of the shore and they had seen this power of God. The, the appropriate response of Christians is we've got to sing. No, we've got to sing. And for those of us who have experienced the rescue of God in our lives, and when we see the one who has rescued us face to face in heaven, there's one thing we're going to have to do. We're going to sing praise to God together. We're going to think about who he is and look at Exodus 15, verse 13. In your unfailing love, we'll think about God's love toward us. Uh, the next, In your strength, you will guide us. We'll think about God's power that was shown when we couldn't do it ourselves. He rescued us. We'll think about our destiny in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. Father, there's going to come today when all, a day when all of your people gather and sing praise to you. Do you see that? The singing is a part of what God's people do when we've experienced the rescue of God. Now, back to reality for a moment. Let's not be naive about this. You know as well as I do that in the life of a church, that music has often been as much a struggle and challenge as it has been a joyous blessing, right? If you don't believe me, let me just try to put something in front of you. Do you have chapter 15 in front of you? There in verse 20, it was infectious. You know, they were singing, singing, singing. And then in verse 20, Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and went out shaking it, I'm sure singing. And all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing and singing. Now, I have just thought that if some of our pastor's wife, we have Lily Bosch right here in the front. If you grabbed a tambourine, Lily, and went shaking it through it all. And a lot of women started following her and saying, do you think I would get a few letters and emails on Monday morning? Uh, you, know, you know, I would. Some of us are very encouraged that when this song comes back again in Revelation 15, God himself is distributing harps, you know, to, to, to be able to sing. So just think about it. The, this singing that we do and, and how it's accompanied, the, the range goes all the way from tambourines to harps. Sometimes I think God's appreciation of music must be much broader than most of the hearts. All of it's a part of his creation, right? And when it is offered to bring worth to him, it is something that can unite God's people. But how is it going to happen? Oh, my. 
I'll give you three principles. I want you to think about them. I hope you'll love me afterwards. Because I, I just have a prayer that God will use this to be, to be the kind of family that Jesus shed his blood to make us to be. All right, lesson number one. I think one thing that might help us is that biblically, the main purpose of music is to express an experience of God, not to generate it. Is that too hard? I want you to think about that. The main goal of music when I read it in the Bible is people have experienced something with God. And so they simply need to express how much they love him and how grateful they are. It is not coming together and to try to generate something that isn't a part of our experience. After the salvation, Moses and the Israelites sang this song. I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and the rider, look what he's done. He's hurled it into the sea. The Lord now is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. See, they've experienced something with God, and the singing just flows out of that. Now, I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the church experience of your pastor. When my father came back to the Lord when I was just a boy, we went into a little bitty Baptist church in West Virginia. And uh, some of you who, uh, who are younger, I, this, I see some of you are as old as I am in this service, so some of you will remember this. The way that we got people to sing together was that there would be usually a very flamboyant song leader. Do any of you remember that? We would just, you know, wave hands, and if the first verse wasn't going very well, he'd say, that wasn't good singing. We've got to sing a whole lot better than that. Let's really sing this time. And then he would wave his hands bigger and sometimes even pull out a trumpet or a trombone and... Almost like the tambourines uh, that we would get going. Do, you, do any of you remember that? Well, as a boy, I used to think, he's just trying to get us to feel something none of us feel. <laughs> so that I thought, get us to feel excited about something we're not all that excited about. Now, those who are younger, let's not criticize my boyhood too much. Because I find the same sort of thing happening in our day. That sometimes we come into the worship, and we haven't been walking with the Lord, and we expect... What we should do is maybe just sing one word or one phrase over and over and over again until we feel something we haven't felt all week. Do you know what I'm getting at there? Um, when we hired a new chaplain at, at Trinity, where I was before coming here, and he was trying to introduce us to some of the music that had gone on before, some that the, the, the people of God had sung before, we, we, some of the like this song of Moses, reflecting upon the great qualities of who God is, remembering what he has done. I remember a group of students came to me and were deeply concerned, and they said, President, we're afraid we're going to lose our worship. Now, first of all, you know what I did. I confronted them about that phrase, our worship, <laughs> because it isn't our worship. He is the only one worthy. So once we got through that lecture from, from me... <laughs> we started thinking about what they were really saying to me. And what they were saying was, we need to just somehow sing a long, long time until we start feeling something we otherwise never feel. Uh, my point is that the main goal of music is not to whip up an emotion that I have never felt before, 
But rather, those of us who have gone through a tough week, we come into church together, we look upon God again, we remember what He has done, and our singing flows out of our experience of Him. Uh, The main goal of music isn't to work ourselves up into some sort of enthusiastic state or spiritual state that we never have. Instead, it, it, it is a proper response to seeing the greatness and the power of God. You see... It's not a very big step to go from this point of saying, um, did I ascribe praise to God in my worship? To the point of saying, do I feel like I did? See, when we make that second stage, did I go into Lake Avenue Church and feel like I worshiped? Suddenly it's no longer God centered, is it? It becomes me centered. It becomes all about me. And so the role of a church And its pastor and those who are leading in the music is to point us and remind us about who God is. To remind us that we don't deserve what he has done, that he has shown his grace to us. And as our eyes are turned away from all of these problems that we have and cast upon him, then prayerfully the joy will return and the singing will come forth. Now, I'll stop for just a second. I'm your pastor. And listen to me. I know that this world sometimes is a difficult place to live in as a Christian. And that sometimes God seems to be far away. Sometimes our spiritual walk seems to be dry. And so you come into church just longing to have that refreshed. I understand that. And sometimes God will use something that is beautiful to draw us back to him. But I just want to say that the basic The basic truth of Scripture is this, that we take time to be more God-centered than self-centered. And when our eyes are fixed upon who He is and what He has done for us, we will sing praise together to Him. Which brings me to the second lesson. And it's this, that I found that the people who are the most enthused to sing God's praise are those of us who are deeply aware of his grace in our lives. Those of us who just love to sing uh, and, and, and probably would have sung both with Miriam as well as with the harp players are those who are deeply aware of God's grace in our lives. We'll go back to that verse 2 of chapter 15 of Exodus. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 6, then, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power and it shattered the enemy. This is why they sang. They were thrilled. They had seen God display his power and they were the recipients of his victory and they just had to burst into song. On the other side, I tried to envision being among those people who had been rescued from, from, from Egypt. Can't you imagine there had to have been a few people there who said, well, it sure took him long enough. Do you know how long we were there? And it sure took him long enough. I'm sure there had to be some people who looked around and says, where did he look what he brought us into? This is a wilderness. (laughs) Not grateful at all. And if they felt that way, do you think that they sang joyously to the Lord? They may have sung, but it would have only been out of obligation. They may have sung, but it was only because everybody else did. 
Those who truly sing Christianly sing because we can't believe that we've experienced the grace of God. That God knows you and me. He loves us in spite of us. And he has brought us into his family together. I've thought back to a newspaper account I read so long ago, back in 1976. Do you remember when we had all of those bicentennial celebrations here, a 200-year birthday of the United States? Almost every place you would turn, there would be a plaque that say, a historical marker, 200 years ago, this happened. There was a New York Times reporter who became just disgusted with all of that. He grew tired of it. So he put up in his yard this plaque. He said, historical marker. On this spot, on July 4th, 1776, absolutely nothing happened. (laughs) Ah, sometimes I I believe that, that the services that we have as a church reflect that kind of a thing. We haven't really experienced greatly the grace of God. We come to church, what, out of habit, out of duty, hoping maybe something will happen. But I am telling you, when we are thankful for what God has done for us deeply, we will find some way to sing. We will find some way to sing. And in the life of a church like this one, where we have such tremendous gifts, we'll bring together the gifts that God gives us, We'll look at the kind of people that God is bringing into our family. And we will find ways to offer our praise to God. Go through that hymnal that's in front of you. And you know so many of those, so many of those have grown out of times of of great revivals. The, The hymns that have continued on, that God's people continue to sing. So many of them were written during the Reformation, during the great Wesley revivals. Uh, in our own country, even when D.L. Moody was having those tremendous, with Ira Sankey, revivals, as people's hearts were touched, they had to write new songs to the Lord. And now we have the privilege of joining our voices with those who have gone on before in singing. And then sometimes there will be a fresh work of God in a people like we are here at Lake Avenue. And we'll just have to think, I've got to sing a new song to the Lord. I have to put it in my language. I have to put it in the form of music that we sing. And we find some way of singing that together. Again, those who are most deeply touched by the grace of God are those who are the most enthused to sing. Because when we're wanting to offer our thanks to God, so many of the things that we're so concerned about in singing don't become all that important. Whether it's accompanied by organ or guitar, whether we praise God with hands lifted or down at our sides, Those are our secondary things. The main thing is we're going to find some way to say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Which brings me to the third point. That when we know that God has shown grace to us individually, then we look around us and you can kind of look around you here. We know that we're not the only ones he's shown grace toward, right? There are others that Christ gave his life to redeem. That God gives a spirit to remake. And so the third principle is simply this. This gathered worship, this worshiping together, is a family event. That's what it is. But that calls for mutual respect. And I really think it calls for a willingness on all of our part to value others as greater than ourselves. 
even as you read through that passage in, in the book of Exodus. In your unfailing love, you will lead, and I like the way it's put, the people you have redeemed. And in verse 14, it's the nations who will tremble. And in the book of Revelation, we find it actually happening. People from every tribe, language, and nation for eternity gathered around the throne of God and singing praise to God. So we see that a church worship service is different from almost anything else in the world. Business people, it's not a self-help lecture at a corporate lecture hall. Though hopefully when the preacher preaches, there will be some things that are helpful to us in terms of our living, right? Nor is it a concert where we go to be entertained with our style of music. In fact, we had a singer named Derek Webb come to our campus once, and he talked about that. He was really giving it to our college students. He said, I think some of you have turned this into a place of entertainment. He said, you know what the church is? It's a place... Where those of us who have acknowledged we need mercy come together with a whole group of other people who need mercy as bad as I do. And all together we have found mercy from God. <laughs> so together we offer our thanks and praise to him. And Derek Webb turned to them and says, if you just want to go to a place that, that has what you enjoy, buy a ticket to your favorite concert artist on Friday night. And then you come to church And be willing to give up preferences so that you can worship together with other people. See, this thing in heaven, I I keep wondering, how will God do it? It's hard enough for us. I mean, we at least all live in the same place and the same generation. But in heaven, we have millennia of people. And we have people from every tribe and language and nation. Can you imagine the diversity of musical tastes that are going to be in heaven? And yet throughout eternity, somehow, God is going to work it so that we sing together. And I think that the way that we can do this is if we recognize that what the life of the church is, it's a family event of of people that, that God has shown mercy to to bring into his family, coming together, giving up preferences, looking for a way to praise God together with other people. Now, I've been here four months. And, and, and the, you know Lake Avenue Church. I get more questions than any other place I've ever been. But there is one question that is greater than all the others. I think if, if the number of times I've been asked this question outnumbers all the other questions I've been asked. And it is something like this. Pastor, we are wondering where you are taking us with regard to our corporate worship. Every week I'm asked that at least once. And and I don't want to just be political about this. I'll tell you how I think about it. I believe that it's a responsibility of a pastor to get the people entrusted to his care ready for heaven. So we meet together, John and Dwayne and Jeremy and Robin and I, we meet together and pray and think about this, think about the people that God entrusts to us people in our community, we ask ourselves, how can we learn to show the unity of the body of Christ through the way that we worship together? I feel a deep responsibility to get you and us ready for eternity. And that's why when you come here, you'll hear me always pointing you to Jesus. 
I want you to trust Jesus, give your sins to him, give your life to him, because you won't have an eternity without that. So almost every time you come, you're going to hear me talk about that. The second thing you're going to hear me talk about is that when there are sins that we're wrestling with, I'm going to call us to get those right so that when we get to heaven, heaven will be a heavenly place. We'll be ready to be there. And with regard to our gathered worship, I simply read what the Bible says. It it tells us we're going to be singing together. And and prayerfully, we can take steps that, that will lead us to becoming a people who are ready to really enjoy singing in heaven. And there's one verse in the Bible. I think my first Sunday here, I gave it to you, and I'm going to give it to you again. One verse in the Bible that I hope we will take to heart. I think this is the core of what has to happen in our spirits and our hearts. It's from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I want you to see first that it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Okay. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We had a wonderful Christmas morning service here. And one woman came up to me, uh, she's a grandmother, and I said, how was Christmas for you? And she said, it was great. I gave my granddaughter a present that I didn't really like, but when I saw her smile, it made me happy. And I thought that if we could get that heart, that as we're singing together, even if it's Miriam and her tambourine, and you look over there and you see God's people singing praise, you say, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm thankful that other family members are singing with us. And then younger people, as you look up and say, organ, I, I don't usually listen to that. And, and you recognize that God's people for generations have sung with that accompaniment. And you see the joy of God's people. And you say, I am going to join my voice with them in thankful praise to God. That something will happen at Lake Avenue Church. That when the world comes and sees it, they will know that God is in this place. You want me to tell you what my prayer for us is? It's this. That when people would come and visit Lake Avenue, someone will look up here and say, Oh, that fellow who was playing drums, I saw him playing at the local jazz club. And and those two people who were playing, they play in the local symphony orchestra. And they are good. And that young woman that I saw sitting over there, I know she likes Kanye West. Uh, I know hip-hop is what she likes. And that man over there, he drove past me in his truck with a radio blaring, and I know he likes Billy Ray Cyrus. But look at those people. They're singing together. And they're smiling when they do it. How is that possible? God must be in that place. God must be at work at Lake Avenue Church. For when people see the love of God's people, they will know that the Father has sent the Son, and they too will believe. To his glory. Amen. May I lead us in prayer this morning? Father, our lives are yours. 
We too have been rescued. Hallelujah. Each one of us here, Father, we don't deserve to be worshipers. But because of your mercy and your grace, here we are, Father. Forgiven through the blood of Christ. Made a part of your family through the work of your spirit. Father, I pray I've been faithful to opening your word. And now do your work within us that we together might become more of what you would have us to be. Father, so that when this world looks at this church family, they may see people who are worshiping you. And that they may be drawn to trust Jesus. All this we pray in his name. Amen.